Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. For the promise of Abraham and his, excuse me, start over. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning. Okay, try that again. I know it's cold. Wake up. Good morning. Thank you. Oh, that was like the best you've ever done. Uh, So it's good to see you. My name is Drew. I am uh, one of the pastors here. I'm obviously uh, wearing multiple hats this morning, and so thanks for being patient with that. It's a holiday weekend, and so uh, some of our regular staff is out, but uh, many of you came on this cold day, uh, so that's great to see you. Uh, We continue in a series this morning uh, through the letter of Romans. If you're new to our church, this is what we would typically do. Uh, We try to go back and forth between the Old and the New Testament and pick chunks of, of Scripture and just work our way through them. Not exactly verse by verse, but at least passage by passage, concept by concept, and that's what we're doing here uh, with the book of Romans. Uh, So if you've not been with us, just a bit of a review because it'll help catch us all up to what we're going to talk about this morning. Beginning in Romans 3, uh, verse 21, if you have a Bible, it would be really helpful because I do want to refer back to a couple of things. Paul begins there after he's talked about sin at length. He talks, he begins to unpack his gospel Uh, which he describes and defines as the righteousness of God apart from the law, 3, 20, and 21. We are justified, we are made right with God by grace as a gift, he says, verse 34. In other words, being moral doesn't qualify anyone, and being immoral doesn't disqualify anyone from the kingdom of heaven. That's That's a really radical statement. Being moral doesn't qualify anyone. Being immoral doesn't disqualify anyone from the kingdom of heaven. There's even a place in the, in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus said to the religious people, he's, he's sitting there with the religious people, and he looks and he says, 
You know, prostitutes and tax collectors are, are going in before you. And so the most immoral members of society are included alongside the most responsible, respectable, and moral, and at times even have a spiritual advantage because good works don't get you anywhere. Sometimes, sometimes good works are spiritual liability because Christianity is grace. It makes people uncomfortable to say things like what I've just said, which I think is really just a summary of what Paul said. So Romans, I guess, makes people uncomfortable. Uh, they don't like it when you talk about grace like this. And a natural question arises at times. Well, if we're saved by grace and not works, as you're saying, as Paul's saying, then, then do works matter at all? I mean, can we, can we live however we want to then and still call ourselves Christians? Is there any moral standard? Do, do, you know, does, it, does trying to live in obedience to God, is it even relevant? Paul anticipates rightly, I think, these questions all throughout, actually. This, he keeps kind of, he, he goes with grace, and then he pulls back, and he says, now let's talk about this, and then he talks about grace a little more, and then he pulls back again. He'll do it at the beginning of, of chapter 6. He does it here also at the end of chapter 3. So he's been talking and just hammering the truth of the grace of God. We're justified freely, without cost. Um, and then he goes on to say, if you, look, if you have a Bible, you want to look back at the end of chapter 3. So he says, for we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, verse 28, what I've already said. Then he goes on in verse 31, and this is the key phrase. And remember, chapter 3 and chapter 4, there's really no chapter distinctions in the original manuscript. It kind of just flows. So he ends chapter 3, verse 33, with this statement, do we then overthrow the law by faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? In other words, if being good doesn't get us anywhere with God, then should you even try? Does it even matter? If Christianity is grace, then we might as well sin as much as we want to. Don't amen that. Because that's not true. Right? We can sin however much we want. It's all grace. In fact, if we sin, then it's more grace. See? Be careful. See, that's the objection. And if you have your Bible, again, look there. Paul says, by no means. Now, you can't say, I can't repeat what that really means in church. It's a little too graphic, but he is saying no. Not no. No. Never. We, we're not overthrowing the law, he says. On the contrary, we uphold the law, verse 31. So one of the most important questions that we can ask, and, and I mean, in your Christian life and in your battle with becoming more and more like Jesus in sanctification, as you husband a wife, as you wife a husband, as you raise children, as you try to engage in, you know, friendships, one of the, one of the most important questions that you can ask and find an answer to that has the most impact on spirituality and Christian, Christianity is how do grace and works go together? How do these two things really fit together? That is the immediate context for chapter 4. But really, it's the context for all of chapter 4 in Romans all the way through chapter 8 in Romans. And let me summarize the teaching, if I can, before we come to the specific passage here in Romans 4. And my summary would go something like this, that grace doesn't make good works optional. Grace actually makes good works possible. Without grace, there are no good works. Because we're told the law doesn't produce obedience, only grace does. So you have to die to the law before you can keep the law. That's the irony. 
Paul says that in Galatians chapter 2. You have to die to the law, through the law. I died to the law that I might be the law, that I might, you know, live the law. You have to die to it before you can keep it. You have to be resting in grace before you can work for God. Dallas Willard famously said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And we have to keep those two things side by side. Grace doesn't make you less inclined to obedience, which is why you shouldn't be afraid to parent with grace. It's why you shouldn't be afraid to befriend with grace. It's why we shouldn't be afraid to pastor from grace, because grace doesn't make you less inclined to obedience. Actually, it's the opposite. It increases your desire for holiness and communion with God. Legalism, the opposite of grace, a moralistic view of things, focuses heavily on obedience, but the irony is it actually undermines obedience. Only grace produces good works. Now, let me just point you to two places, and I know, long introduction, but it, I think we have to set the stage for what Paul has to say here in Romans chapter 4. So let me, let me uh, put you to two places in the New Testament. And the first is from the passage that David read. That's our assurance of pardon. So from Titus chapter 2, I want you to see, and if you just look there in your worship folder, Titus, uh, Paul writes to Titus and he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what's the next word? And training. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So what is the, what is the, grace is like a personal trainer in the Christian life that yells at you when you need to be yelled at. When, when you're, when you've tried to lift too much weight and it's right here on your neck and you're about to choke to death, comes and lifts the weight off. There's a training, grace trains, Paul says. Now, the second place, which we read this past week in our community Bible reading, I hope you're reading with us, in Luke 6. It's just so, 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 so wonderful. I didn't want to pass up the opportunity to, to share it with you. But there in Luke 6, Jesus describes the difference between love and obedience that, is, that his followers show and what is what I would call what is normal in the human experience. So you might remember the passage. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Remember this? Sinners do that, he said. That's nothing special. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit, there's that word again, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who cannot pay you back, then, I mean, what credit is that? What Jesus is saying is, is there's nothing supernatural or abnormal about any of that. All people do that. But if you don't, know, if you don't read it in the original language or have books that tell you what it is in the original language like me, You'd miss that what, what Jesus is really saying when he says what benefit, he's saying there's no grace in that at all. The word grace. If you love those who love you, there's no grace in that. If you just give money to people who you know are going to repay you, there's no grace. What grace is there in acting that way? That's easy. But Jesus is saying grace actually makes something entirely different possible. He goes on to love your enemies and to give to those that you know will not return the favor and you show, show kindness to the least deserving and so forth. Only grace can make you an emotional, excuse me, only grace can make you a person who has the emotional storehouses and the vision to live like that. That's what Paul's saying. So, from a wide angle lens in the scriptures, grace doesn't overthrow the law, it upholds the law. You with me? Let's make sure we're all on the same page. Grace doesn't overthrow the law. It actually upholds the law. 
It makes, this is Romans 6, 17, which I've just fallen in love with this verse. I can't wait to get there in a few weeks. It makes obedience to the law, but law from the heart, not just from external pride and fear. This is what I pray for my kids, right? That they would not only obey, but that they would obey from the heart, willingly, joyfully from the heart. You can become obedient from the heart to the doctrine which you were committed. Listen to that. You can become obedient from the heart to the doctrine to which you were committed. Do you know what that means? It means you don't, you don't um, just believe grace. If you're a Christian, you don't just believe grace. Paul says you obey grace. Right? That's what it says. You can become obedient from the heart to the doctrine. You see that? So you don't just obey, you don't just believe grace, you obey grace. And Abraham is the example of the kind of obedience that comes from being counted righteous in the grace uh, of God. And so he's put forth here to us in Romans chapter 4. Now we come to the second part of this passage. We looked at Abraham's righteousness last week. This week, beginning in verse 13 and down to the end, we're going to look at his faith. And so to obey grace, as Abraham did, there are three things that we see here. We're going to work through them really quick. Three things about obeying grace. To obey grace... Not just believe it, but to obey it, you have to, number one, rest in Christ. Number two, you have to reach for the impossible. And number three, you have to rejoice in God. And yes, they all start with the same letter. The Spirit is moving this morning. You have to rest in Christ, reach for the impossible, and rejoice in God. That is Abraham's faith. And we're told here that all who believe follow in the footsteps of his faith. And so only grace makes those three things possible. And so let's look. Can we walk through this text together? First, the first reason Paul gives us for why grace doesn't overthrow but rather upholds the law is that genuine good works are motivated by gratitude and love. To obey grace, you have to rest in the finished work of Christ. Now, Paul spends the first part of Romans 4, which we looked at last week in detail, hammering this out because we are so prone to forget. You, you and I are prone to forget. We, we don't become a Christian by grace and then live as Christians through effort. Grace is the A through Z of Christianity. So let's look again, verse 13. If you, if you uh, look there in the passage that was printed for you, the promise did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Go down to verse 15. For the law brings wrath. And then to verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. And so Christianity is not law. Law says, do this. If you do this, or you must do this. Law is all about us. It's about our actions, our conduct, our behavior. And under the law, everything is a matter of dessert and merit. Not dessert like strawberry ice cream. Dessert, merit, what I deserve. Wages, to borrow a term from last week. Do you remember, do you remember uh, Paul writing about that? There are those who act towards God as if there's wages. Uh, that's how you deal with a guilty conscience. Verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short. So Paul says we have bills that need to be paid. No matter who you are, you know this, he says. You feel it, every single person, whether you're a believer or not a believer, whether you're you know, old guard Christianity or you're very new to the faith or you're investigating the faith. We all know that there's a debt that we owe to God. And we feel this. And so what do you do? How do you pay the bill? How do you, how do you pay off the debt that you owe? Well, the, the impulse in each and every one of us is that we would begin to work hard, that you earn a wage. And, and by earning the wage, you pay off the debt. 
That's religion, though. Not Christianity. It's salvation by works. And most people who think of their spiritual lives as wages are either, I said this last week, one of two things. Either they are trying to make up for failure in the past, or they're trying to deal with their fears about the future. You remember this? They're making payments. They're making payments to pay down the debt so that before they die, there's more good than bad, which is going to weigh out on the scale, good or bad. And I want there to be more good because if there's more good, then I get to go to heaven. But if there's more bad, then I go to the bad place. And that's how we think about it. So we we all want to go to heaven in the black and not in the red because we know nobody goes to heaven in the red. Or at least we think that. Or what's happening is a person who's doing this is trying to make up excuse me, is trying to build up reserves so that when something really bad happens, they can ask God to pay them back uh, by getting them out of the mess so they can, they can make a withdrawal from the account that they've built up. I do what God asks me to do, and then he owes me, right? And then, and then when, uh, when, something, when, when I'm in need, then now give me what you owe me. Do you see the problem? The problem with this way of relating to God is that the motivation, you know, what is the motivation of the person whose obedience is wages? They want to get paid. They are obeying for their own sake. They feel guilty or they are, you know, and they're using their obedience to feel better about themselves or they obey to get things from God in the future when they need to. Either way, they are selfishly motivated. There's no love and gratitude and therefore it doesn't count. You remember the time the law expert came to Jesus and said, how do you, what is the law really about? How do you summarize the law? What's, what really is the message of the law? And you remember what Jesus said? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind and, and love your neighbor as yourself. What's the law about? About love. If you're not motivated by love, then you may be really shiny and pretty and moral and respectable, but you're not obeying the law. Because the law is about love. Christianity is not law, it's faith, we're told. Verse 16, in order that it might rest on grace. And grace is free. Grace is a gift. It's not based on merit. It's anti-merit. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or irreligious. It doesn't matter whether you were born in a palace or in a gutter. Your moral performance in the past, good or bad, is irrelevant. Your future is not in jeopardy. Okay, let me say that again. Because this should stir your heart. If you're here and your faith is in Jesus, your behavior in the past, good or bad, is irrelevant. And your future is not in jeopardy. That is the truth of your life. Because God relates to you upon it by his grace. And the only guarantee is grace. It's a sure thing. Your past doesn't define you. Your future isn't dependent upon you. Abraham is the example that Paul uses to illustrate this. Abraham understood that the basis of his relationship with God was the promise God made to him, not the promises that he made to God. Isn't that great? You've ever made a promise to God? If you get me out of this, I swear. And it lasts about five minutes. Should we do a show of hands to see who's broken their New Year's resolutions already? I haven't even started mine, so there you go. I keep thinking I'll do that tomorrow. Do you understand The basis of our relationship with God is based upon the promises that he makes to us, not the promises that we make to him. 
Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness, we're told. And so you obey grace when you do good works, not so that God will love you, but because of how he has already loved you in Christ and you're resting in his love. You can obey God because you want or need something. You can obey to truly give something. You can obey from selfish motivations or from love, but the only obedience that counts is that which is motivated by love. The only way to be motivated by love and not fear or selflessness, selfishness is to know that God's love for you comes before, not after your obedience. Grace. Grace says, it doesn't matter whether you obey or not, I love you. <laughs> Grace says, you don't have to love me in return. There's no demand, there's no threat. Can you imagine parenting like that? There's no external compulsion. But the irony is that an experience of that kind of love without threat or compulsion or demand is what unlocks the heart to love. When you don't have to obey, somehow you find that you want to. Right? God loves a cheerful giver, Paul writes elsewhere. That, you know, I love, Paul loves a cheerful giver, and it could be said of all of our obedience. It, our obedience should be full of hilarity and gratitude and freedom, not compulsion and reluctance. Law can't get you there. Only grace can. There's an old hymn entitled Love Constraining to Obedience. Isn't that a great hymn title? We don't write songs with those kinds of titles anymore. Love Constraining to Obedience, and it describes this kind of transformation that grace can bring. And here's what it says. Here are the words. Then my servile works were done. He's talking about the past. I used to just be a slave. Then my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise. Now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways. To see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. That is the heart of a person who really has come to know the grace of God and is living his life in obedience to that grace. But secondly, there's a second reason that, that grace doesn't overthrow but rather upholds the law. It's not just that good works should be motivated from gratitude and love, but also that good works require faith. In other words, to, to, uh, to obey grace, you have to reach for the impossible. And here we see, we know, if you're, if you're familiar with the story, you know that Abraham is the case study of how to be saved by faith, not works, but he's also the case study of how to live by faith. And if you're saved by, by grace through faith, you live by faith. If you're a Christian, you're, you're an impossibility made possible by God. Do you know that? You are an impossibility made possible by God, so you spend the whole rest of your life like Abraham reaching for the impossible because it's just kind of the, the way you do things when, when you know yourself to be an impossibility made possible. You walk, verse 12, walk in the footsteps of Abraham's faith. And you look down at the end of the passage and you see that he says these things were written not just to them but to us. This is, this is, for, this is not just something that happened back then. He's saying our lives should become the echo of what we read about Abraham in the scriptures. We walk in his footsteps. What does that mean? I think it means that every act of obedience is an act of faith. The text says Abraham believed God, verse 18 Look at that, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And then he lived his whole life in keeping with his belief. 
you, you know the story, I think some of you. Uh, God called his name. He called to Abraham to go. And we're told in the Bible that he went even though he didn't know where he was going. Isn't that great? Abraham, go. Where are we going? Uh, I'll show you. Okay, let's go. My kids do that. I don't do that. Listen, if we're going over 500 miles on the road, I know what road stops. I mean, I know what exits we're stopping at. I got it all laid out. Anybody else? Hey, let's go. Where are we going? I don't know. That No way. No thank you. Abraham, let's go. I'm in. He trusted God. God said, I'm going to give you a son. And even though he was old and Sarah was old and barren, he trusted God's word more than what he could see with his eyes. Years later, you remember when Isaac was grown, the Lord spoke to him again and said, offer him up as a sacrifice. And Abraham obeyed. And in Hebrews 11, here's what it says about his obedience. It says he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Because Abraham knew that God takes impossibilities and makes them possible. All of Abraham's life was faith. And you and I are called to walk in the footsteps of his faith, to imitate his faith. So, you have to know that God is a God of miracles. That's the lesson of grace, isn't it? This is why, we, this is why it's obedience to grace. Grace is the evidence that God is a God of miracles. Grace means that God has done the impossible. Listen, in saving me, if you know me, you know this. In saving me, and I know you so I know about you. In saving you and me, God has done the impossible. You're not, you're not a Christian until you know you're up against a, an impossible situation that you cannot save yourself, that you can't muster the strength to obey God as you should on your own, that you can't even believe on your own. The Bible says that by nature we are all dead in trespasses and sins. You can't see, you can't hear, you can't understand spiritual truths unless God first breathes life into your deadness. Every Christian is a miracle. I've had this thought lately, I look at my kids, they're getting older and I want them to grow up and know their sin and trust in Jesus as their savior and I want them to love him and to serve him for the rest of their lives and I just, uh, I've, it's been painful to go through this because it reminds me that I want all of those things more than probably anything else in my life but I can't ensure any of that. No matter how much I pray or how much I read the Bible to them or how well I do at parenting them or Ashley's a better parent, no matter how much I trust Ashley's parenting of them, the truth of the scripture is salvation belongs to the Lord. If he doesn't work, it doesn't matter. So every time one of the children of our church that's been baptized on the stage comes to faith, we should be amazed. We should hoot and holler because we're witnessing a miracle. It's a miracle. Raising well-behaved children who say yes, sir, and no, ma'am is not enough. Christianity is not just moral instruction. It is the dead coming to life, and only God can do that. And so if you've been saved, if you're here and you're a Christian, you've been saved by grace, and that means you're a miracle. And if, and if, you're, and if your walk with him started with a miracle, don't you see? There's an anecdotal, anecdotal story, it's kind of cheesy, but I'm going I'm to share it that illustrates faith. It's about a man named Blondin who was apparently, I don't know whether, I really don't know whether it's historical or not. You can look it up later. I didn't have time to do all the Google searches, but he was, he, uh, he, there's this guy who's going to tightrope across Niagara Falls. 
And so a crowd gathered to watch, and he made it, you know, they watched him go out over the falls and come back on the tightrope, and, uh, and then everybody's going crazy, of course, and then so he comes back and he starts to rally the crowd. He says, you know, who here believes I can do it again? And yeah, we, yeah, we believe, we believe. He says, well, who thinks I can do it pushing a wheelbarrow this time? And the crowd's, oh, yeah, we believe, we believe, we believe. And so he went across the falls and back successfully pushing the wheelbarrow, and the crowd went wild. And then he came back and he asks, who here believes I can cross over the falls a third time, but this time with a man in the wheelbarrow? Oh, we believe, we believe. Wouldn't that be amazing? He says, okay, then who's going to be my first volunteer? (laughs) Crickets. The crowd dispersed. (laughs) Faith is more than just believing in God or believing the right things about God. It is believing him to be true to his character and his word in all the different circumstances of your life. It's getting in the wheelbarrow. And that'll mean you'll find yourselves time and time again in situations like Abraham facing impossibilities. Here's the thing. Don't run from them. Run towards them. I hear people say, it's too hard. It's too much. It's too risky. It's too long. Listen, those are the places of obedience for those who follow in the footsteps of Abraham. I wish I had time for examples. Uh, you should share those with your community group uh, where, the, where God is doing that. I think you probably know the places where God would call you to similar things. But let me just make two points of application before we move on and finish. Uh, two, two things that I just observed from what we see from Abraham here. And the first is that weak faith is real faith. Talking about faith, weak faith is real faith. I want you to... I want you to hold on to that because Paul offers a glowing review of Abraham's life. Look in verses 19 and 20. He says, he did not weaken in the faith. No distrust made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith. Now, that's, that's an interesting description, especially if you're familiar with the story in Genesis, because you know, <clears throat> you know from Genesis that Abraham did waver. He didn't get it right all the time. So doubting, if there's doubting, there's doubting that's a part of faith, and then there's doubting that's a sign of no faith. That's what, this, that's what it means there. If you say no distrust made him waver, it means uh, no, the Greek word for faith with the prefix ah on the front of it. So literally, no, no faith made him waver. So there's a doubting that's a part of faith, and then there's a doubting that's a sign of no faith. And so don't look at your little faith, if that's all you've got, and conclude that you don't have faith at all. Don't wait until you've got enough faith. Here's my advice, and I think it's the advice of the text. Step out in whatever little faith you have, because that's the only way to get more. Faith is like a dynamic force. It waxes and it wanes. But the true child of Abraham, like her father, is never completely without it. That's the first thing. Weak faith is real faith. But then secondly, I want you to see that faith is an adventure. And here's what I mean by that. Look in verse 18. It's my favorite part of the text, I think. It says of Abraham, in hope he believed against hope. Anybody living there? In hope against hope? Abraham believed God for a future he could not see. That's what that means. And then he, he acted in keeping with that vision. So let me just remind you, whatever is right now is not what will be. Life is a story. And when your circumstances and God's promises don't match up, you with me? When your circumstances 
and God's promises don't seem to match up and you can't figure out how to bridge the two, don't, don't get discouraged. That's an adventure. That's an adventure. With God, with the God of Abraham, life is not a tragedy. It's not a comedy. It's an action-adventure story. How's this going to happen? How's God going to come through? I know he's going to come through. I can't see it, but I know it's going to happen. How's this going to happen? And so if you live by faith, life becomes an adventure. You were built for that. Your muscles atrophy over time if you don't live in that with, with the Lord following the Spirit. But of course, we can be like Bilbo Baggins, or was it Frodo? I can't remember which one, who said of adventures, nasty, disturbing things that make you late for lunch. Who wants those things? I'll stay right here, thank you. And your heart just shrivels up. So faith, faith is an adventure. Don't forget those two things. Now, thirdly, and let's come to a finish. The argument we're making is that grace doesn't overthrow, but rather upholds the law. And we've said that the first reason is because good works have to be motivated by gratitude and love and that they require faith, like the faith of Abraham. But then the third thing is is that good works flow from worship. In other words, to obey grace, you have to rejoice in God above everything else. Now, where did Abraham's faith come from? And here's the little phrase that I want to draw attention to here at the end, verse 20. And it really is the key, I think. And it says, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And that's the secret. That's the key. Now, I want you to see a couple things here. I want you to first see the honesty that Abraham is able to, to hold in regards to his circumstances. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. Okay, he didn't put his head in the sand. He didn't pretend things were better than they were. He didn't, he didn't just live uh, refusing to admit the truth and the reality of the situation. He did not weaken, we're told, when he considered his own body. He considered his own body. He said, this is the real reality of my life, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So he has a very honest appraisal of his situation. So Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous preacher in London in in the last century, he said, faith is not something that refuses to face facts. Abraham looked at the facts as they were at their very worst, and yet, though he did that, he was not at all weakened in faith. Why? Listen to what he says. He says, because he did not stop there. He did not just go on looking at the facts and the difficulties and the obstacles. He looked at them, but having looked at them, he looked at something else. He looked at someone else. He goes on, he says, the trouble with unbelief is that it only looks at the difficulties. It considers them and nothing else. And then he uses the example of Peter walking on the water. You remember the story when he began to sink. He began to sink because he took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to look only at the waves. Lloyd-Jones says, faith does not turn its back upon problems. Listen to this. Faith does not turn its back upon problems. It surmounts them. It looks them straight in the face and then rises above them. He brutally honest about the reality of his circumstances, but what allowed him to do that was there was a confidence in Abraham in the greater reality of God. Paul captures Abraham's faith as something like this. Yes, I know I'm 100 years old. Yes, I know Sarah is old too. Yes, I know we've dealt with with barrenness and fertility issues all of our lives. Yes, I know uh, there's no physical, humanly possible way this can happen, but God gives life to the dead. 
but God speaks into existence things that do not exist. He makes something out of nothing. So my deadness and my nothingness is no match for him. That's faith. See, sober, realistic honesty about the reality of the difficult situation, whatever it might be, but soaring confidence in the greater reality of God. Yes, it's true, this, but God. Unbelief looks at hard circumstances and says, yeah, yeah, I know God is powerful. Yeah, I know God is good. Yeah, I know he can do whatever he wants to do. But, but this, I mean, look at this. Look at what I'm dealing with. Okay. With faith, God is the greater reality. And that's what it means to glorify God. Abraham grew strong in his faith, verse 20, as he gave glory to God. And that word glory means weight or significance. So faith strengthens as God becomes more weighty. Do you understand what I'm saying? Faith strengthens as God becomes more real. Yes, it's scary. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it doesn't look good. But God, he's omnipotent. There's no limit to his power. There's no deadness that can stand before his life. There is no darkness that can stand before his light. Nothing is too difficult for him. He is omnipresent. There's no limit to his presence. There's no place. He will not go with me. There is nothing he doesn't know. He is righteous. There's no limit to his moral excellence. He can do no wrong. All his ways are perfect. He is merciful. There is no limit to his compassion. He is not unmoved by my pain. My broken heart breaks his. He... Sorry. I don't know what that was. The devil. <laughs> Evil from the devil. I should start over. Man, it's too bad. Don't let that, don't let that detract. Your broken heart breaks his. God is not standoffish or aloof, even if it feels like he is. He feels deeply about you and me. He is good. There's no limit to his creativity. There's no limit to his creativity to take all of my bad and turn it around for good. Abraham gave glory to God. He turned his eyes away from the deadness of his old age and the nothingness of Sarah's womb to behold, there's our word, to behold the, the greater reality of God until, verse 21, he became fully persuaded and convinced that God was able to do what he promised, despite what his eyes could see. And here's why you need grace so much. Grace... Grace magnifies God. There's real advantage in our denominational, in our Presbyterianism. In, in our circles, God is really big and man is really small. Grace does that. Grace says it's all God. Man does nothing. Sole, sole Deo Gloria, right? To God alone be glory. The God of moralistic, therapeutic deism Christianity is uninspiring. Legalism, which is the opposite of grace, keeps you focused on yourself. Legalistic Christianity is all about you, so you're, you just are constantly thinking about you. That's the problem, right? All you're ever thinking about is you. You're not looking to anything beyond you. The gospel says it's not what you do for God. Stop looking at all that you're doing or not doing. Look up to God. Get a big view of God. That's the key, and only grace does that. So let me just close with this. Three just bullet point applications to you. First, if you want to follow in the footsteps of Abraham's faith, here's, here's a couple things you got to do. First, get to know more about God. 
Get to know more about God. Look at God until you begin to, to look to God. It's more than just knowledge and study, but it begins there. One of my top 10 most important books in my life, all-time life-changing books, was A.W. Pink, The Attributes of God. I read it in college, changed my life. Jen Wilkins, None Like You, is a, a, a newer book. Really great. Get to know more about God. Number two, act on God's promises even when it's hard. In other words, don't wait until your faith is strong enough to take a leap of faith. A lot of time, you leap and then you learn. Run towards impossibilities, not from them, because when you move into places of weakness and need, you get more of God. So it's not just in the big stuff. Tell the truth when it will cost you a friendship, because it's what they need and it's how God promises to work. Act on his promises even when it's hard. And then lastly, remember the gospel. And that's where Paul ends, chapter 4, verse 23. Through 25, Jesus has saved us not by being strong, but through weakness and defeat. He conquered by becoming nothing so that we might have our nothingness turned into something. He died and was raised, and therefore he can breathe life into all of our deadness. For most of us, the issue isn't whether God is able to do for us. We don't doubt his power, at least I don't. The question for most of us is, is he willing? We doubt his heart. Look to Jesus. The gospel answers this question. Do you see his heart for you in Jesus? Do you believe him? When he says, because of the work that Jesus has done for you, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you believe him? Don't look at me like that. Do you believe him? Then get in the wheelbarrow. Right? Let's pray. So, Father, we are... We are weak in faith, we confess, and so we do, we do ask and pray that you would cause our aching joints that have been sitting for too long, uh, the, the muscles of faith that have atrophied from lack of use in our lives, uh, cause them to come to life again, that we might put one foot in front of the other to walk in the footsteps of Abraham's faith, because we know that this is the place of great joy for us. It's where we get to know you. It's also where we glorify you. And so we do pray that you would overcome our unbelief. That's what we started this service with, singing, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. And I pray for my friends, wherever it is that you would be calling them to step out in faith, would you lead them, gentle shepherd, uh, would, you, would you comfort their hearts and strengthen them to believe that whatever, whatever leap of faith you might be calling them to, uh, that if they jump, you will catch them. And you will glorify your name through them. But we need you to do such a great work in our hearts. And so we pray that even as we sing here at the end, that you would uh, do just that. Be thou my vision. Be our vision. Be our wisdom. Be our treasure. Be our everything, Lord, uh, we pray. Uh, and so as we sing, make that true. Uh, make it not just words, but things that we feel in our hearts. May we sing now, not just with our lips, but from deep places of faith and trusting you. If you believe that, can you say amen? Hey, there we go. Not only is he able, is he able but the promise of this benediction is that no matter what you might feel, no matter what might be true of what your heart is saying, uh, not, only is he able, but, or, or not only is he able, but he's willing. That's what these words mean. So uh, reach out your hands in faith and receive the promise of the benediction in this word. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you, give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen.
Go in his peace and walk in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham.